Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we'll visit Jerry Machen of Kingsport, Tennessee. When he first started making art from old carpets, his wife Linda wasn't impressed. I walk in from work and my whole kitchen floor is covered with pieces and he's going to put a picture together. And I'm like, is it going to be done before I have to start supper? We also meet the devoted family and friends of Cousa's Uptown Barbecue, who rallied behind the acclaimed Appalachian restaurant during a hard time. But there's a group of us told them, we will come and wash dishes, we will prepare salads, we can clean tables, anything to keep from closing. <laughs> and it used to be that every grocery store had a trained butcher behind the counter. But that's not the case so much today. So the owner of a Charleston abattoir had an idea. Well, let's teach people from the ground up. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The last three years have shown how fragile our food supply chain can be. Earlier in the pandemic, distribution bottlenecks and breakdowns at processing plants meant some products went missing from grocery store shelves. That's why Buzz Food Service in Charleston set out to build a new model for locally raised meat. But it needed butchers to make that plan work. And butchers can be scarce. So Buzz came up with an old-fashioned solution, an apprenticeship program. Folkways reporter Zach Harold has the story. Bo Bellamy gets to Buzz Food Service at 7 a.m., a full hour before the day's meat cutting begins. <laughs> Buzz sells fresh meat and seafood to restaurants, resorts, and other commercial customers in seven Appalachian states, all from a headquarters just outside Charleston. But before any of that can happen, the butcher shop has to pass a daily inspection by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's why Bo's here, getting things ready. They're not looking for like chunks of meat. They're looking for tiny, tiny little specks. And if they find something like that, they either A, well, you have to fix it, or, you know, they could shut you down altogether. And sure enough, he spots a tiny speck of meat, smaller than the size of a match head, wedged between two tables. See, that little spot right there. He takes a cloth and cleans it off. That's enough to get you in trouble with the USDA. Bo clearly knows his way around this meat shop, but he's only been doing this for about a year. He spent the previous 10 years as a paramedic, riding around on ambulances. But then the pandemic hit. Bo and his wife had a premature newborn baby with breathing troubles. He didn't want to risk bringing anything home, so he quit. He delivered bread for a while, worked for a friend's asphalt company, and then he saw a billboard for a brand new paid apprentice program at Buzz. See, Buzz was expanding. Just down the street from the meat shop, the company built Appalachian Abattoir. Abattoir is French for slaughterhouse, where Buzz processes locally raised cows and pigs. Most of the time, animals raised in Appalachia get shipped off to the Midwest, where they're fattened up, slaughtered, processed, and butchered. The meat then makes the whole trip in reverse, traveling thousands of miles to end up in your grocery store. Buzz President Dickens and Gould said the company built its abattoir to keep at least some of that meat right here at home. Essentially, four companies in the Midwest produce 85% of the beef and pork that we consume in this country. Four companies. We put ourselves now in a position to essentially supply ourselves. Buzz staffed the new venture with employees from its existing butcher shop. But that meant it needed somebody to take their place, and experienced meat cutters aren't exactly in ready supply. And I had many people say to me, you know, that sounds like a great plan, but where are you going to find people to do that kind of work? And the best idea we came up with and that we kept coming back to was, let's start from scratch with a real apprentice program. Let's teach people from the ground up. Previously, Buzz trained meat cutters one-on-one. -on -one. New hires learned at the elbow of a more experienced butcher. But with so many newbies coming all at once, the company needed to formalize the process. When Bo and four other apprentices started work at Buzz in September 2021, they began an intensive curriculum that covered every aspect of the meat business, not just cutting the meat, but also the economics of it. Apprentices learn about the biology of cattle. They've taken field trips to other processing facilities. 
They get the chance to work shifts at General Steak and Seafood, Buzz's retail operation in downtown Charleston. And it worked. Angela Gould, the company's chief operations officer, says this approach has helped apprentices become much more proficient, much faster. Because in the past, it would take about a year and a half for a new staff person to really be able to work completely independently and really cut some of the more, some of the higher end or more expensive cuts that we process here. And now we've found that that, with this group, is reduced down to about six months. There's no better example of this than our friend Bo. He's become a maestro of the meat shop's bandsaw, rocking the machine's sliding table back and forth, turning beef short loin into identical looking New York strips. He's even training students of his own after a second class of six apprentices started in January 2022. And what you're doing is you're setting it up to, to look good as a runner. You know, it's what, two years as a, in a paramedic before they allow you to get on an ambulance. So to be able to walk in the first day and start to learn and then after five months to be able to teach somebody else is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, certainly a credit to the program. But Bo's education is only about halfway done. The whole apprenticeship program takes two years to complete. At the end, he'll hold a certificate recognized by the U.S. Department of Labor. And from there, he can pretty much write his own ticket. Have you noticed that there aren't as many butchers in grocery stores anymore? Well, Buzz President Dickinson Gould says that's not because it isn't profitable. Grocery stores just can't find anybody qualified to do the job. The grocery stores are essentially realizing where's the next generation of people qualified to do this work. They, they don't exist, nor is there a school you can send people to for that kind of training. It's exactly the kind of training that we're building here. For his part, Bo says he's going to stick around Buzz for a while. But even if he were to leave and go to work for a grocery store or maybe start a butcher shop of his own, it would still serve Buzz's overall goal to make the supply chains that we all depend on a whole lot shorter. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Charleston, West Virginia. Hey, call me the meat man. You ought to see me eat now. I'm the meat man. Lots of families live with furniture, silverware, and rugs. But we sometimes take them for granted. We seldom think about who makes these items or where to turn when they need repaired. One man in Kingsport, Tennessee, has been building and repairing carpets and rugs for more than 50 years. For Jerry Machen Sr., the business not only provides him with a livelihood, but also an opportunity for expression and discovery. Volkwiz reporter Nicole Musgrave has the story. In their two-room workshop in downtown Kingsport, Jerry Machen and his wife and business partner, Linda Machen, are picking out colors for a custom butterfly rug. Is this? What is this? Mustard? Uh-huh. Mustard seed. Where are you going with the mustard seed? Uh, she just wanted it to pop on the corners. Like here? Jerry designed the rug and created a template out of butcher paper. The future rug will be one big butterfly in a mix of pastel colors. As they work, Jerry tapes small pieces of yarn to the template to see how all the colors work together. Hold on to it. Thank you. Beautiful. God might hire us to make new butterflies. The Machins have owned their business for over 50 years. They named it Agape Carpet and Rug Specialists of America. Agape is a Greek word. It means God's unconditional love. I guess the reason why I can create and do the things that we do is his love for us. And me loving exactly what I do. Jerry's love for carpet started in the mid-60s. He was in his 20s and was working at a furniture store, creating custom draperies. That was my first love. And then they needed help in carpet installation. So I fell in love with carpet. Jerry learned the ins and outs of installing carpet while at the furniture store. But eventually, he struck out on his own. With every installation job he did, Jerry always saved pieces of scrap carpet in case his customers needed repair work done. After a while, he had so much scrap carpet that he rented out an entire house to store it all in. Linda was not very happy about this. 
See, I didn't know about the house for a little while. That was interesting. It caused a little stir at the house. My wife came in one day and said, get rid of it all. You gotta get this place cleaned out. But Jerry didn't want to just throw all the scraps away. He thought he could make use of them. One day, he saw a painting of a mountain scene and he got an idea. He decided to recreate the painting with scraps. I said, I can do that in carpet. I've never built one before in my life. But in my mind, I've thought of it over and over again that I could build that. Linda came home to find Jerry working in a frenzy on the kitchen floor. I walk in from work and my whole kitchen floor is covered with pieces. And he's going to put a picture together. And I'm like, is it going to be done before I have to start supper? At this point, it was the 70s, so Jerry was working with pieces of shag carpet in vibrant hues of blues, oranges, reds, and pastel pinks. He hand-sewed all the pieces together from the back, and he was surprised by the outcome. When I turned it over, I was amazed at how it looked. It was actually beautiful. After creating that mountain scene, Jerry soon began sewing one-of-a-kind rugs and wall hangings for customers. He's created hundreds of designs, including horoscope signs, landscapes, animals, and logos. For Jerry, it's a thrill to bring an idea to life. I love working with my hands. If you can build it in your mind, you can put your hands to it and you can put it together. Over the years, the business has turned into a family affair. Along with Linda, Jerry works alongside his grandson and his oldest son, Jerry Jr., who goes by Joey. Today, in the back room of the workshop, Jerry watches over as Joey uses clippers to shave down the edge of a piece of carpet. Once the edge is straight and neat, Joey uses an air compressor to blow the tiny scraps out of his way. Finally, he sews on a strip of fringe to finish the edge. Nice and stitched through here. Joey explains that along with installing carpet and creating custom designs, they also do a lot of restoration work. The restoration is a big part of the business. A lot of people have rugs and homes that's been handed down from generation to generation. And bringing those back to life is is, uh, pretty amazing. But the Machins don't just clean and repair rugs that customers bring in. Sometimes, Jerry will find rugs that people have thrown away. He'll bring them into the shop and give them the new life he feels they deserve. I can tell a real good rug, so when I find a good one, then, of course, I'll stop and pick it up. I like to solve it. I like to go and make it whole again. Instead of trashing it and throwing it away, then um, I like to repair it or uh, build it back. Much like the custom design work, the restoration work is an opportunity for Jerry to put his creativity and problem-solving skills into motion. Every one of them tells a story. It's not one rug that is specially hand-knotted and tufted that is the same. Every one is different. So you have to find the method that they use, the knot that they use, to even repair it. If not, it's going to show up. So... It's a learning process every day. Jerry's not the only one at the shop who finds creative fulfillment in the installation and restoration. Joey does too. It's more artwork than it is work. It's more creative. You know, you have a chance to expand your imagination on doing different things, you know. And it, it, it's actually, it's a lot of fun. And Linda feels similarly. I didn't even know I had any creative abilities, but I was good with colors and with shapes. Jerry continues to teach others about the art of carpet design and repair. In 2021, he was awarded a traditional arts apprenticeship grant from the Tennessee Folklife Program. Through the grant, he's mentoring Stacy Kimbler on how to create pictorial wall hangings using a tufting gun. Today at the shop, Stacy's working on a honeybee design. Stacy stands at a seven-foot-tall wooden frame that has a piece of white cloth stretched over it. He holds the tufting gun up to the cloth, and as he pulls the trigger, yarn shoots into the cloth at high speeds, creating the tufted design. 
Jerry stands nearby and gives advice on how close together the tufted rose should be. Yeah, you can go over top of it, it won't hurt it, but just go and fill it in, in the middle. Tighter the better. Yeah. While Jerry values passing down his knowledge of carpet art to others, he acknowledges that there's always more he can learn, too. If you have a gift, then the gift should keep on giving. I think it's very important to just keep what we have and learn from it. I don't know everything, and I'll never know everything, but I'm willing to learn each and every day. And after all these years in the business, the possibility of discovering something new is what keeps Jerry going. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Kingsport, Tennessee. Those last two stories came from our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. Zach and Nicole each made short documentary videos about their stories. Check them out on our website, wvpublic.org. Oak trees play a crucial role in regional forests. In southern Ohio, U.S. Forest Service is trying to grow more oaks. But to give these trees a fighting chance and sunlight, officials say they need to clear-cut a large swath of other trees that are already established. Now there's a lawsuit. The Allegheny Front's Carol Holsapel has the story. At issue is a proposed U.S. Forest Service project in the Wayne National Forest in Ohio, about two hours southwest of Pittsburgh. The nonprofit Ohio Environmental Council is suing to stop it. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant was at the courtroom in Columbus for the hearing. Hi, Julie. First off, what is the crux of the issue? Well, the Forest Service proposed the Sunny Oaks Project nearly five years ago. It spans 25,000 acres of the Wayne, and one of the major goals is to create young, brushy forest and grow a new crop of oak trees, and they have a preference for white oak. Why is the Forest Service focused on growing an oak forest? Well, oak trees, and especially white oaks, are used for making things like furniture and barrels for bourbon. This is an important industry for this region. They're considered an ecological powerhouse. Oaks produce acorns that many birds, bears, and other species rely on, and they host hundreds of kinds of insects. But a report by industry and forestry groups finds that within a generation, they could disappear from American forests. That's because of climate change, invasive insects, and diseases. Well, how does the Forest Service project address that? The project would open up the forest floor to more sunlight for young oaks to grow. It would do that by clear-cutting 1,600 acres. The Forest Service didn't want to talk. It declined interviews about the project because of the lawsuit. But according to a video made by the agency, the clear cut would mean all the trees would start back from zero age and that would give oaks an advantage. Okay, well, I take it this is why the Ohio Environmental Council takes issue with this project. Yeah, that's right. At least in part, OEC attorney Nathan Johnson says regrowth after clear cutting only works if the oak trees already have roots that are well established. And he says the Forest Service just doesn't have the data to know that. In U.S. District Court in Columbus, Johnson argued before Chief Judge Algernon Marbley that the agency is not following its own forest plan for the Wayne. There's a standard in that plan, and it requires the agency to maintain 12 trees per acre, trees that have loose bark. Those are oaks and hickories. That loose bark provides habitat for endangered Indiana bats. I spoke with Johnson on the courthouse steps after the hearing about this. Unfortunately, the Forest Service wanted to move clear cuts and other cuts of similar nature so badly that they just took this standard and essentially threw it in the garbage can, Uh, something that's highly unlawful under any sort of way of looking at the situation. So what's the actual legal argument? Johnson argued that the Forest Service's decision to clear-cut and not maintain those 12 trees per acre was arbitrary and capricious. That's a legal term. 
Judge Marbley then turned to Department of Justice attorney Paul Freeborn, who represented the Forest Service, and asked why the agency didn't just change the forest plan to avoid these claims. Freeborn argued that in the project area, there aren't that many trees with loose bark, and he said the agency has flexibility to not follow the standard. What happens next? Well, Judge Marbley noted that in his many years as a federal judge, he'd never gotten to consider trees in a case, and he really appreciated that. But in terms of a decision, he said it should be issued in 10 to 14 days. Thanks, Julie. Sure thing, Kara. More from Julie Grant at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Kara Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Later in the show, we head to Pounding Mill, Virginia, to visit a barbecue restaurant that serves up southern Chinese egg rolls with American cheese. Now, actually, one of our old staff uh, came up with the idea. She wanted to put a slice of cheese, and the thing that was around was Velveeta. So after we tasted it, we thought, wow, that's good. (laughs) That's after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. In 1862, during the Civil War, 20 Jewish Union soldiers came together in southern West Virginia for a Passover feast known as a Seder. This year, a group in Beckley, West Virginia, is recognizing that event. WVPB reporter Shepard Snyder spoke with Joseph Golden of Beckley's Temple Bethel congregation and Drew Gruber of the Civil War Trails about this event's historical significance. I do want to ask if the both of you could provide some historical context on this Seder in particular. Why is something like this interesting in the context of the Civil War and the context of West Virginia history? It's basically a footnote to the movement of troops and the battles that took place. But it's also an insight into the various diverse members who were in the Union Army from various backgrounds. Apparently, 23% of the Union Army were foreign-born. Now, some of these Jews may have been foreign-born, some may have been first-generation here in the United States. But it was an um, example of something that's little known. Uh, there were Germans and there were uh, Irish, large contingents. There were approximately 7,000 Jews who were in the Union Army. And... There were also about 3,000 estimated Jews in the Confederate Army, mostly from South Carolina. But for the Jews to be there away from their usual communities, to bond and to commemorate something that is basic in their uh, culture and traditions of having a Seder. Just continuing off of that, I kind of want to dive a little bit a little bit more into how or what the significance of this event was to the soldiers themselves during wartime. And how does that sort of historical significance translate to the present day? For our team, interacting with this story highlights the fact that as historians have focused on the Civil War, they've they've often focused, at least for the last 150 years, on the military maneuvers and sort of the macabre idea of how many soldiers were killed at this engagement or how the you know, how they got there and what the results of that individual battle were. But every time we have an opportunity to work with communities and they share the stories of their soldiers who came through their community or the soldiers who came from their community, it is these bright moments that the soldiers choose to recognize in their letters and their diaries. They don't go into huge amount of detail about how a battle went down or occurred. They'll usually refer to a friend who was lost, but these bright spots of 
you know, interacting with somebody who would otherwise be the enemy on a picket post and exchanging a newspaper is a bright moment for them to share because it's it's again that bright peaceful spot in this in this war. We found a lot of people really intrigued by this blending of cultures, all things that is sort of the what we know and promote today is the beauty that is sort of Appalachian foodways and how this intersects with these Jewish traditions is, I think, just very invigorating and enamoring for people to think about happening in what was otherwise sort of the wilds of West Virginia at the time. I also want to talk a little bit about faith. You know, you hear a lot of these stories about soldiers during wartime coming together to kind of celebrate their faiths. I think the most famous example or the one that comes to mind for me immediately is the World War One Christmas truce. But I was wondering if uh, either of you could speak a little about why and how religious faith matters to soldiers during wartime and why that's so important. Throughout the Civil War, especially as the military campaigns wind down and we, we sort of hit the winter periods, there are multiple revivals in in camps, both north and south. Um, and those revivals run the run the gamut of religious perspectives. Um, so we often see that once the military campaigns sort of uh, quiet down a little bit, that soldiers will turn back to these things uh, and also chat with each other about their faith. I think that in fa- facing conflicts, facing possible death, just about everybody gets in touch with their spiritual self. And whatever faith tradition they come out of, they turn to that to help maintain their spiritual connection and their sense of uh, purpose in the conflict. Both the Confederacy and the Union invoked God as the protector, you might say. In military conflicts, you turn to your deeply ingrained religious experience that you've had growing up and rely on that to maintain um, your faith that your role is uh, righteous. Why is it worth recognizing these sort of diverse off the beaten path events in history or celebrating these voices that we might not typically hear. I think it personalizes our connection to the people who were there, the the troops, the men who were fighting and on the areas in which they uh, went through um, the locales by knowing these people as people. It's not just about a a bit of data. It's allowing us to empathize and to learn from them personally. That was Joseph Golden and Drew Gruber speaking with reporter Shepard Snodder about the significance of a Civil War Passover feast in West Virginia. People love to argue over which barbecue sauce is most authentic, vinegar, tomato, or mustard. But Cuz's Uptown Barbecue in Tazewell County, Virginia is distinguished by something entirely different. For one thing, its food is inspired by Asian cuisine and local mountain specialties. You can find things on its menu, like morel mushrooms, cheesy egg rolls, and country ham caprese. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey-Kitts and her family recently stopped in at Cuz's for dinner. Connie brings us this story. It's a little past 5.30, and the gravel parking lot of Cuz's Uptown Barbecue is full of cars, vans, trucks, and motorcycles. Customers are already lining up outside this big purple, orange, and blue barn with its attached red brick silo sitting just off the edge of a four-lane highway. Just in front of the restaurant's entrance, two life-size ceramic pigs stand like sentries. A pig in a tutu stands atop the gatepost. Customers are leaving as we go in. That door's heavy. I know it'll break your arm. It's heavy because it's the original double-hung oak door of this former dairy barn. Once inside, paintings of pigs morph into dragons. Red, pink, and yellow Chinese lanterns hang from the dining room ceiling. There's a string of masks and cartoon characters running the length of the bar. You could easily think you're in a folk art museum. That's Yvonne Thompson, who owns Cuz's, seating customers at one of the 40 hand-painted tables or booths. When we first opened in 79, it was just, we had four tables, and there were lines out the door on the porch. The lines still go out the door. 
People arrive by all modes of transportation, from hikers on foot to CEOs who come in by helicopter. As the cashier rings up tabs under the eye of a life-size polar bear, busboys maneuver around papier-mâché pigs. And of course, we're into pop culture. Pee Wee Herman, uh, uh, who, who else? Superman, Hulk Hogan, Elvis. <laughs> Most of this art was either drawn, painted, or curated by Yvonne's late husband, Mike, an art history major who co-founded the restaurant. He loved animals, period. There's uh, this cow, but he couldn't stand it because it was too plain, so he painted it with polka dots. Other art in the restaurant came as gifts from customers, like a life-size cutout of Elvis in pink overalls holding a pig in his arms. Somebody stole that one time. It was sticking out of the convertible as they left the parking lot. But then they brought it back a few years later. <laughs> they felt bad. See, everything in here has a history. I was curious about that history, especially since the mixture of Asian and Appalachian seems pretty impossible to miss. Native hickory wood alongside elephant bamboo. Woodcuts alongside a silk Chinese embroidery of chickens. Turns out Yvonne is Chinese and grew up in Hong Kong. She wanted to go to college in the United States. And my uncle had a really good Chinese restaurant in St. Louis, Missouri. He, he was my sponsor and I came and lived with him and started working in this restaurant from day one. He not only taught her about restaurants, but he also taught her life lessons. Like the time Yvonne saw an employee put sugar in her purse. I said, look, uncle, she's taking sugar from you. He said, look away, look away. He said, she's my best cook, my best worker. She can have my sugar. Think of that lesson, yeah. Yvonne graduated from the University of Missouri in journalism. After she moved to Richlands, Virginia for her first reporting job, she met and married Mike Thompson. It was Mike's cousin who suggested they start a restaurant in Mike's old family barn sitting empty by the road, so they named it Cuz's. Barbecue was hard to find back then, so it became Cuz's Uptown Barbecue. But if he was the only one running it, it probably would fold in a year because he didn't know how to run a business. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I'm the business person and have the organization and the skills, but he was the flair, the, the fun part. <laughs> That's the yin and the yang. He the yang and I'm the yin. In the Chinese philosophy of yin and yang, the point is that differences can work together. And Yvonne says she and Mike were the best examples of that. Mike died four years ago in an accident, and Yvonne thought strongly about retiring. But she knew how Cousins had become so much a part of the community's life, and she thought Mike would have wanted her to carry on. He's probably still speaking up to us down from the grave. <laughs> Mike's humor is on the menu covers, where each cartoon character or meme reflects his wit. Open the menu, and you'll see it in the food descriptions, too. Like the macaroni and cheese, you can order either plain or skanky. That was the word Yvonne says just came into Mike's head when he needed a way to describe blue cheese. Well, it was a funny word. People are always like, what? But then they laugh about it. It's early morning at Cuz's, and the kitchen's been buzzing since 5 a.m. Yvonne is crimping a pie crust of one of her popular desserts, and she works right alongside her staff, many of whom have been with her for decades. Praise for the older people. They know how to work. <laughs> but there are plenty of young faces, too, among the 30-some people on the payroll. From baby boomers to Gen Zers, Cuz's staff call each other family, figuratively and literally. Like 65-year-old dishwasher Judy Conley, who works alongside her 21-year-old niece, Megan Dye. Judy remembers Megan as a baby. They, when they first brought her to Cousins, she was about this long, and I got to hold her. And now I'm working with her. On Mondays, when the task is to make a thousand egg rolls, the kitchen crew becomes the kitchen brigade, and anyone can get recruited to help. Egg rolls have been on Cousins' menu from the start. The dipping sauce recipe came from Yvonne's uncle, but the version that Yvonne calls a Southern Chinese egg roll came later. No, actually one of our old staffer 
came up with the idea. She liked cheese and she wanted to put a slice of cheese and the thing that was around was Velveeta. So <laughs> that's how it came about. And after we tasted it, we thought, wow, that's good. <laughs> good enough to earn a mention in a food exhibit at the Museum of Chinese in America in New York City. Back by the grill, the brick ovens and the barbecue smoker, award-winning chef Mike Oder, known as Mikey, has just finished cutting up steaks. This is the prime rib. Just trim it up a little bit. He's worked at Cuz's for 38 years, and now he's also Yvonne's business partner. He's proud of how the staff work together. Because everybody's been here so long, they automatically, they just know what needs done. But everybody here has got their own personalities and they're, you know, we all click good. You know, it's like a family. Part of Chef Mikey's job is passing down techniques and shortcuts to the younger guys cooking the meats, like Taylor Cole. He started working when he was 15. He has a degree in applied mathematics from Radford University, and he chooses to work here rather than use his degree to teach. But as for applying that math in the kitchen? Simple math ain't really my strong suit, more of like calculus. I'm more, I'm way better at calculus than simple math for sure. I'm like, I'm much rather go do some calculus and then break some uh, tablespoons or teaspoons down. <laughs> So I'm always like, Mikey, will you do this for me? Because I'm confusing myself trying to figure it out. <laughs> he gets satisfaction out of working here. I love the rush that you get from like when you get in 20 steaks filled up on your grill and you're, everyone's just screaming at you. I love it. And I love, you know, making great food for people, people enjoying it, them telling you they enjoyed it, knowing that you made that. I don't know, it's a lot of reward. Stepping out the back door, I see the restaurant's garden not far from the highway. In a good growing season, Yvonne says it allows cousins to serve exceptionally fresh food, like the corn. We pick them the day we use them, and you can't hardly buy corn like that. It'd be several days old at least. We're trying to conserve our effort to only grow things that we cannot buy. One of those heirlooms ends up in an appetizer where Cuz's adds an Appalachian twist to the Italian caprese salad, pairing country ham with fresh mozzarella, the basil, balsamic vinegar, and tomato. And this tomato is special because the seed was a gift from a customer whose family had grown it locally for over a hundred years. And over the years, it's these kinds of community ties that have sustained Cuz's and been part of its resilience, most recently through COVID sicknesses. Last Saturday, they were closed because they had several employees sick. But there's a group of us told them, we will come and wash dishes, we will prepare salads, we can clean tables, anything to keep from closing. <laughs> That's Wanda Lowe, who comes in with her husband almost every Saturday for dinner. And she remembers another time when Cousins was forced to close. In 2008, a fire destroyed large areas of the kitchen. It damaged the roof, wiring, and furniture. It was actually the second time a major fire had spread through Cousins. It brought back the despair and made many wonder if this might close the book on the restaurant's history. Yvonne's son, Arthur, had been home for the summer after just graduating from the College of William and Mary. He was the one who came to us while we were standing outside, seeing the place burning down. He said, you have to rebuild. This is our legacy. I will stay and help rebuild this place and not take a job until you can open back up. So he stayed and walked through the winter, and then he left when we were able to open the door. He found a job then. As I got ready to leave, Yvonne and I browsed through the public library's county cookbook that included one of Yvonne's recipes, along with histories of restaurants. I asked Yvonne what she would want cousins to be remembered for. You know, treating people the way you want to be treated, walking in their shoes. And it, it, maybe it's like an older philosophy. So I think I think maybe the two words that sum up this place is passion and compassion. What do you think? And a heart. And to me, that's the starting point of a good 
business. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Bailey Kitts in Pounding Mill, Virginia. Hulu miniseries Dopesick is a fictional take on the very real and very devastating stories of people affected by the opioid crisis and the companies that helped create it. The show won a slew of awards, including a Peabody and two Emmys. It's based on Roanoke journalist Beth Macy's 2018 book of the same name. Macy's latest book is Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Opioid Crisis. It looks at how people are trying to help through harm reduction, needle exchange programs, and attempts to hold drug manufacturers accountable. Macy talked with Jeff Possert of Member Station Radio IQ. I start the book next to a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot with a nurse practitioner who's seeing a person in active use. He's never had care before, and he's going to die if he keeps using. And Tim Nolan, this heroic nurse practitioner, says two things. One, you can get better. Most Americans think you can't. You think you can't, but you can. And two, and this is the key to getting better, don't disappear. That means he's going to get him on these life-saving medications. And even if he relapses in the next week, still meet him back here the week after. And if you can't make it to me, I'll come to you. Just give me a text. And a lot of people would think of that as coddling. But 40% of people with opioid use disorder say they can't get better. They're hopeless about it. And that's because they've been treated so poorly before when they've tried to interact with our systems of care. Where is the argument at in terms of harm reduction and what some people are catching on to and many others are not? Where do you think the sense of optimism is now? My sense of optimism is that there are a lot of really amazing people doing incredibly heroic is not too strong a word to describe their works to help the most marginalized among us. My frustration is that in particularly in distressed rural areas where the epidemic, by the way, has lasted the longest, where it began, where they have the fewest resources to address it, many of those areas um, are perhaps not inclined. Um, for instance, Charleston, West Virginia, which has is having right now this huge spike in HIV cases, uh, they basically outlawed needle exchange uh in many of the communities there, or they regulated it to a point where it's practically outlawed. And that's really concerning when the CDC says it has the most concerning outbreak in the nation. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen. Harm reduction is kind of a counterintuitive thing. You're going to give these drug users needles. Isn't that going to enable their use? Well, it turns out no, because they've been so far left out of our systems of care that they don't trust the systems anymore. And so you've got to go to them where they are, build up trust. And eventually, we know that people who go to needle exchanges are five times more likely to enter treatment. The pandemic forced many people into isolation and certainly hurt this issue. So how much has COVID-19 the last couple of years and maybe the political divide stolen headlines from, from this crisis? Right. And a lot of people think there's opioid fatigue, as they call it. Um, there's a lot of articles out practically every week about this morass of super complex opioid litigation. That's a hard thing to follow. I try to break that down. About a third of the book is about the quest for accountability told through these the lens of these activists that are trying to hold Purdue Pharma's feet to the fire to make them pay for creating this epidemic. And then we know that overdose deaths, every time they announce a new tally, Uh, They've gone up from the year before, and a lot of that is COVID-related. People were using drugs with no one there to Narcan them or were simply so um, depressed by job losses and whatnot, you know, that many people in long-term recovery even return to use. What hope is there left to try to hold the Sackler family account after bankruptcy court and paying billions to gain immunity from future litigation? Well, that's perfectly put, Jeff. That's what they're doing. It's like a traffic ticket. If uh, you and I were caught selling uh, some user amount of dope at the subway uh, station or at the bus station, we would be in jail, but not for the creators of this crisis. They have given up their company, Purdue Pharma, 
and have pledged to give $6 billion to help solve the opioid crisis. That sounds like a lot of money. Well, they've made more than $13 billion. They've stocked a lot of it away in offshore accounts that people like attorney generals of Massachusetts and New York can't get their hands on. And they're rich enough that they've been able to hire $1,800 an hour lawyers to protect them, PR consultants to teach them, help them break the rules that they agreed to abide by when they pleaded guilty to fraudulent marketing in 07. And again in 2020, this is what we call billionaire justice, alas. But there are still people working to hold their feet to the fire, including the trustee's office of the bankruptcy court under A.G. Merrick Garland. The the case is still in uh, at appellate, and we're expecting a ruling any day now. And there's also talk of criminal indictments for the first time in years um, of the Sackler family. You know, this wasn't a driverless car. Somebody ran this company. And those people should be held to account. You mentioned a couple of times in the book, President Biden's drug czar. He's had a mixed record regarding needle exchange programs, but claims to now back harm reduction. And I saw recently that he was now behind such programs, admitted to mistakes as the health commissioner in West Virginia. So I'm wondering what impact he might have if he's really changing his approach. Right. Uh, Dr. Raul Gupta did. Um, I mean, I thought it was great when he admitted that he had been wrong. <laughs> That's rare for a politician these days. What I say at the end of the book, where I really do give some policy prescriptions uh, based on my 10 years of recovering this issue off and on, that the drug czar's office should be elevated to a cabinet-level position as it was prior Back in the early 70s, under President Nixon, believe it or not, before he invented the war on drugs, he actually had a system of care for returning veterans who were from the Vietnam War who were addicted to heroin so that anyone in any community could go to a walk-in clinic uh, and get on methadone if they needed and also get help with their housing and social supports. And that's what we need to get back to. I'm also wondering about the emotional toll on you. You've lost a lot through writing Dope Sick in this book, Friends, or know people who have lost. And I'm wondering about needing better boundaries for yourself. I mean, where are you at emotionally after all this writing? Yeah, um, I was so bereft after Dope Sick, after we lost Tess Henry, because I had really followed her story and especially her mother's journey very closely. And I wasn't going to write about it again, frankly, because I was so having this... I don't know, secondary trauma, my doctor thought. Just to provide some context here, a few years ago, Macy wrote about Tess Henry repeatedly being denied evidence-based care for addiction in the Roanoke area or being stigmatized when attending 12-step meetings. She had been attending a treatment facility in Las Vegas but wound up back on the streets still fighting addiction. Henry was murdered at age 28 in 2017. But then as I started traveling around talking about Dope Sick, I started seeing these really innovative things. And that felt like I was being part of the solution to continue to write about the solution. So it's actually very healing for me to go spend time with people who have really figured out the best ways to get this community access to care. Very healing, very inspiring, very hopeful, although, you know, The big picture is still we are not offering treatment at the scale to match the scale of the crisis. So as a journalist, you know, it makes you feel good when you're trying to educate your community about the best way forward. And if you see some of the change, I guess you're wishing for, is there another book in all this? I mean, if I had an idea that I thought was worth a third book, I kind of see my first book, Factory Man. I see this kind of as a trilogy, Factory Man, followed by Dope Sick, followed by Raising Lazarus. At the end of reporting Factory Man, so this would go back to, what, 2012, I started to see the epidemic really roaring up, particularly in these small towns. And I went back to the Roanoke Times for a bit, and I did this three-part series. It was the first time writing about what we then called the heroin epidemic, what we now call the overdose crisis, because it is a crisis of multiple kinds of opioids. Um, And I actually pitched Dope Sick back then. You know, I didn't end up writing it until... 2018. But people in New York who were my gatekeepers, my editor and my agent, didn't really see it as a story. Um, In fact, one said uh, they thought Roanoke was just late getting it. They had had the heroin crisis in New York City in the 90s. So it was a slow simmering story that a lot of people in the cities missed. And it wasn't until 2015 when that data came out to show that we were uh, experiencing a life 
expectancy declines for the first time since World War I, did people really start to start investigating this. Well, is there another project unrelated that's that's up ahead for you? Um, I'm thinking about doing a book next about why, as Americans, we can't really have Thanksgiving dinner with our extended families anymore. So I'm still pondering that, still trying to figure my way into that really sticky wicket of issues about the divide in this country. We are also a few weeks from the Emmy Awards, which I assume you'll be attending. Yes. And I'm just wondering, certainly it's great whatever awards dope sick the, the Hulu series will win. Um, there already been honors for Michael Keaton, but I'm wondering what attention this will help bring to the issue when you have an Emmy, potentially Emmy winning series uh, come September. Yeah. I mean, the show has been great. It could have been a disaster, right? But we have this brilliant showrunner and creator, Danny Strong, who got how important it was to get the message across that there are life-saving treatments. And so when you see an A-list actor like Michael Keaton struggle to get on buprenorphine and then struggle to get on methadone and then eventually becoming a leader in his community, that is the narrative that we could have if we wanted. And so like the best feedback we've had on the show has been from family members who said things like, after I watched your show, I picked up the phone and I called my addicted son for the first time in three years. So it's starting to change that Overton window, that, that thinking away from the drug war mentality that these people are more moral failures uh, to these are human beings, our loved ones, and maybe they've caused us harm in the past. But if we can help them access the right kind of treatment, maybe we can put our families back together again. That was Beth Macy speaking with Radio Accu's Jeff Bossert. Macy's book is Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Opioid Crisis. If you want to learn about a recovery program in your community, please call the free and confidential treatment referral hotline, 1-800-662-HELP, or visit findtreatment.gov. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Andrea Tomasi, The Steel Drivers, Eric Vincent, and Mary Hott. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.